0: SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 50 with guest Lewis Davidson. Our guest today is Lewis Davidson. Uh, Lewis is a previous guest on the show, and uh, we'd like to welcome him back. So welcome, Lewis. Thank you. Now, Lewis is a SQL Server MVP and well noted in uh, writing areas around SQL Server and also quite a bit with blogging. Uh, I noticed particularly around Simple Talk, and he's had an interesting series lately on what counts for a DBA. But what I'll get you to do for people that haven't uh, listen to the earlier show because it was a while ago Lewis just maybe a quick description of how you come to be here and uh, and what you're currently doing
1: I've been a SQL server fanatic I guess for like 17 years now I think maybe a little longer but uh, I'm not going to admit any longer than that Yep and I just back in the day I I couldn't find any good materials on database design and I was I'd gotten a job tech editing a book a VB Database, um, mashup kind of book, and mm-hmm. I was talking to to the editor, and I said, "Are there any books on database design?" And you guys want to want to have one? Now you should find somebody to write that. And they were like, "Why don't you write that?" Yeah. <laughs> well, I've never written more than a twenty-page paper in my my life, and I remember the grades I used to get on those twenty-page papers weren't all that great. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And they were like, oh, you should try it. and You should try it. And then about a year later, you know, I was finally finished with it. And I said, I'll never, ever do this again.
0: And and yet you've continued to do so.
1: A couple of years later, they said, uh, when Rock's kind of changed ownership, we'll we'll say, the, yeah. the new owner said, would you revise it? And I was like, No, oh, no. And then I said, well, we'll give you a little money. And I said, well, okay. <laughs>
0: <The little laughs> I was going to say, if it's a book, though, it's a very little money.
1: <laughs> yes, and it it it's amazing how little it is. Um, I don't want to brag at how little I make, but it's um, you know, you do it for the you do it for the love. I I one of the things that's really cool is I, I reference my own book a lot because I you know the, I put all the techniques I use for writing triggers or building constraints of a given type. Or even normalization. I, you know, I need to figure out something, but I'm trying to explain to somebody something, and it's just where I wrote down everything I knew. And
0: it's good too because look, I like the idea that it's targeted directly at SQL Server because one of the other things is that there are books on these sort of topics around, and they tend to deal with a very lowest common denominator way of doing things. And so, for example, I remember reading a book on database refactoring and thinking oh it's so excellent that somebody's finally producing really good content around that but then when I had a look at how they did everything every single thing inside the book was done via triggers even if it was something that for example would just be a a computed column and then I thought oh yeah so it's a you know that's one of the problems with something that's that's not targeted at a specific product while it is a way you could potentially do it it's not something you'd want to do so yeah i do like the idea that you're targeting the product directly yeah we made the conscious decision that the first
1: half of the book would be pretty much um implementation in, in, independent kind of like you should do a design you know you yep. you find out what the what the requirements are you find out why you design a relational database the way you do learn the rules learn the system and then you start applying it to whatever SQL Server does hmm. and, or whatever your, what, and really whatever your implementation tool is, but in my case, SQL Server, obviously.
0: Yeah. And so tell us what the book's called, the current one.
1: It's called Pro SQL Server 2012 Relational Database Design and Implementation. Just pretty much Excellent. what you can say in one breath. That's...
0: <laughs> actually, that's I've found that's a pretty good series, those books, actually. There's uh, been some interesting books in that series. I, I, I tend to be a SQL Server book junkie now, as well as being a product junkie. And since I have had a Kindle over the last few years, although I'm now using an iPad with the Kindle app almost uh, in preference all the time to the Kindle, um, but yeah, I do tend to get like almost every SQL server book that comes out. And, and that is a series that I do quite like.
1: It's nice having things on Kindle. And then because you can search and you can like, I need to learn how to do a trigger. And I just, and you can go to the index and indexes are never as good as you'd expect them to be.
0: Yeah.
1: And, but you can go in and just search for the word index or create index and just keep flipping through until you find one. And even better, just go to your, um, your directory and search using um, Windows. Yeah. Find the word, create Look, index. One, of,
0: it takes me one of the things I really like as well is that I used to have a really good library, but it was here and I was somewhere else. <laughs> and and the difference is now I've got either the iPad or the uh, or a PC, and the thing is I've got the same books on both basically, and they're always with me. So I mean, this is this is a really good thing, and particularly for books, like uh, I quite like Art Tenick, uh his MDX uh, cookbook type ones, and the DAX cookbooks, and so on. These sort of things, where they're, they're just sort of like little recipes for how to do things. And so when you're sitting there thinking, like roughly how would I do this, that's exactly when you want those sort of books there with you. And the web
1: is great. I mean, people, people, there's always this discussion of whether books are necessary or the the web is necessary. I like the book for teaching you something and teaching you a common set of, of techniques. I use the web more than books, obviously, because the first mm-hmm. place you go to, oh, I, yeah. I forgot how to create an index. You know, I, you go there and you type in create index into Bing or Google or whatever you use. And it comes up with a thousand different ways to do something. Sometimes it's done by somebody who has no idea what they're talking about. And some
0: Exactly. It's,
1: it's done by one of our MVP friends and sometimes by one of our future MVP friends. Right. Yeah. And, um, but in a book you get a chance to go through the whole entire process kind of teaching people along.
0: Yeah. And so look, if we look at in the, the current line, I suppose I should start with like, what, what are the most common design mistakes you think people make?
1: Mostly just not designing. Not not At thinking. All. Yeah, one of my latest things I'm trying to put words around is is more or less design testing and and once you have a design, you're not you don't you don't implement it yet. You think about what the process is and you write out the process and you go through the steps of storing data mentally if you can, you know, keeping up with what what's going through and going through all the different processes. People don't take time, at least a lot of people I know and and read about on the web when I'm answering questions in the forums whenever I get the chance to get there. People don't take the time to think about all the different possible meanings of what they're storing. And, And I'm doing a presentation on patterns. and One of the things is you can store a value in one table or another table or another table, and that one question has the exact same answer. But you may have answered three different questions by where you store a piece of data. And not Mm -hmm. thinking about what you're actually ending up with leads you to not having a a solid enough answer to what it is you're implementing. And you usually find that out whenever it's implemented and the users are using it and people are writing queries and they're going, I I don't understand what this means. And you go, well, you know, neither do I. (laughs)
0: Yeah, do you you think a lot of that, though, is that it's very rare that people seem to get to do greenfield database applications? Um, I I mean, I'm sort of thinking that most of the the time what I see is I see applications get thrown away and rebuilt and things like that, but the data in an organisation seems to live on and on and on uh, beyond generations of applications, and... Part of the issue there is that people never get to sort of start with a clean slate and design something. Invariably, most of the guys I know doing development work in around databases seem to spend most of the time modifying something that's already there and dealing with the mess that's already there.
1: Yeah, well, me too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um one of that's one of the parts one of the fun parts about writing and doing presentations is you actually do get to do things that are are, are great yeah. because you don't have a, a legacy holding you back but even then you still need to think about what you're building as you're building it, and what it means the um
0: i i have this problem as well the the reason i'm asking that is i'm wondering if rather than always uh where we talk about hey here's good design maybe one of the things that'd be interesting is to spend much more time on the here are the techniques that allow you to go from something horrible towards something better you know what I mean? Because I think in many cases, those techniques are actually quite critical. It's how do I do refactoring and retake control of something and s- slowly morph it towards a good solution rather than how do I design a really good solution? Um, um, mind you, I suppose you, you need to have a target of where you're going anyway.
1: Oh, yeah, and, and that, that's what I was I think I was trying to say um, was... You really have to to be able to read the data model that you have, and know where you need to get to, and kind of build out a path. We right now I'm building, uh, it's built on another on a third party tool, but it it has an email one, email two, email three column, and we decided we needed to have a bit of information to say this email address is an active email address. This email address is a historic email address. This one is also an active email address. So we need some way to do that. And obviously my design was let's have an email table and then yeah. it'd be nice and easy. And then you can have email address four for free, right? Yeah. But we couldn't do that because the application's a little bit fragile in the way it builds itself. Mm-hmm. So we have email address one status, email address two status, email address three status. And, you know, everybody by this time, email address one, two, and three didn't seem kind of silly, right? When they were building it, it probably seemed pretty reasonable to them. But now when we have six columns, or I guess nine columns, for representing email addresses all in the same table flattened out, it starts to get silly looking. Yeah. And people are like, yeah, we probably ought to do that the right way.
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing I was getting at, is that if you set those same people down, when they were initially doing the design, given the current uh, requirements, they would not have designed it that way. But it ends up being that way because they keep morphing something that is already there and just adding that extra little bit and so on. And I think this is where the real problem comes in, is that uh, as I'm going around doing consulting, you look at things and what I hear all the time is people who are just apologising for what's already there and you know full well that those same people would never design that like that if they were given a chance today. Well, you, they say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> fair enough. Coming
1: from somewhere, right? I mean, look at if we look at any kind of software, databases just happen to be the things that that are the most foundational of structures that get mm. that are really hard to change because of the billions and billions of rows of data that are attached to them. Sometimes you know in, in that email situation, one of the one of the things I want to do is implement the email table right, and then copy the emails back into the other table to sort of provide a path. Because there's this legacy code needs to work one way, but the yep. future code should work another way. So you may end up with duplication mm-hmm. trying to get there. But if you don't really have a complete roadmap of how to get to what is right, well, then you're just Hose, then you've got multiple copies of things that don't don't work and don't match
0: yeah
1: and nobody has time right because mm. because somehow somewhere somebody told people that yes it used to take six years to write a piece of software but now we have this new thing new techniques and we can do it in weeks
0: yes or, and, or uh, seconds yeah they just whip it up and there it is and it looks almost finished yes
1: no, i i mean i know it was it's easier now and we have better techniques but it doesn't necessarily take days orders it's, it it's
0: actually one of the challenges where you have good tools for doing say a proof of concept is is trying to explain to people when they see the outcome of that that that, that that's not the thing
1: yes i mean i don't know <laughs> so, who who came up with the idea that iterative software building would take less mm-hmm. time than building it all at once i mean there's the problem with building it all at once wasn't that it took longer or it shouldn't have been if People weren't, you know, padding their hours and whatever, golfing and whatever they needed to do. But the problem was that by the time you got finished, people were like, we, we don't need that anymore. You know, things, things I, I was
0: about to say the, the – the, if you look at the total time, yeah, I, I tend to agree there. But the, the reason I like having lots of little iterations of small things is exactly what you say, that you can keep – Coming up with results, you can keep getting feedback, and you can keep driving in the direction that somebody wants to go. Because the, uh, I do like the quote. I don't remember who said it, but they said that look, any large successful software project used to be a small software project that yeah. was successful, and and that's the, that's the thing is that every time I see large waterfall approaches, uh, I I always say to people, I say, you know, this never works, right? And uh, they always say yes, 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 we understand that, but, and then they want to go on and do it anyway. And and invariably when they do it, as you say, it does take much longer. In the end, the thing that comes out isn't what people wanted. And I find the the real problem with a lot of this is that no matter how good somebody is at asking questions or drilling into what customers want, they often can't explain what it is they want. And it's not until they often see it that they start to realise what they they uh, really want. The other thing is, I think they use the wrong words. So, I mean, I'll have people say sales, but they actually mean profit, yes. you know, and so on. And so, th- this is the sort of thing where you go, no matter how good a job you did at doing that, in the end, it's not what they want because they actually said something different.
1: One of our, one of our examples that has happened to me was we did a, a project for a, a, a chemical company, and they wouldn't sell product unless it was a certain quality. And so we built the system very rigidly. It will not sell unless it beats the quality. Mm-hmm. And what they really meant was we usually don't sell it that way.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an early early design thing you learn is that, yeah, when they're adamant about such things, it's it's usually not true <laughs> like at, at all. Actually, you mentioned along the way design tools, and one of the questions I was on Twitter yesterday and asking people what I should ask you, and our SQL rock star buddy Tom LaRock said... I should ask you what design tools you like, yes, and he'd
1: better not be in front any? of my car this weekend at sequel <laughs> um, well, obviously T sequel so <laughs> no yep. um well, nobody took up me took me up on my offer of bribery to make me say their mm-hmm. tool. so yeah I, I, I use I use Irwin quite a bit mm-hmm.
0: that's the one I see mostly around town,
1: and I use it because I had a friend who worked at Irwin. 15 years ago back when it was owned at LogicWorks, and our company mm-hmm. used it for 15 years and I've been there for 15 years. So yeah, um, that's kind of been the de facto standard.
0: Do you use that for the logical design or do you go further and have that spit out DDL statements?
1: I use it for the logical design to start with. And actually I use something called a concept map sometimes mm-hmm. that I've, I've discovered a tool for my wife has working on her um, doctorate in education, and they were building this concept map. And I was like, "Man, that looks a lot like a conceptual data model." Yeah. And that, or paper, or a whiteboard, you know, to start with. But I use Erwin, and I, I know other tools do this. I so don't, don't. I'm not. They're not paying me, and I'm not mm. advocating them as the only tool. But um, I, I use it for implementation as well. Some of the things that a data model can give you is, is you have all this metadata and you can store properties about the, the attribute you can put in relationships that don't actually necessarily exist in the actual model. You can, I I have some tools that generate code based on properties of the table. Like if I have a, a column that I want to make a domain out of the distinct values in that column, because the application wants it, I Mm -hmm. add a, a user defined property, it stores it. And then I have a a stored procedure that goes out and creates these tables automatically. I can store the, the, the definition of columns. I can store the definition of the table and all that sort of thing. Starting with a, a modeling tool to me is, is much easier because if I, if I know people who, who design using um, tables and go straight to the tables, I get kind of in love with the tables I create. You know, I build them and I start yeah. putting some data in there and they look really well. I'm, I was building a design just this week, and I I was to the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to create this database. And the next thing I get an email, someone questioning if we can do it the way they said we could do it. And yeah. so I'm like, I got to delete half of the work I've done. And it's very simple to delete a picture or erase a lens. Hmm. It's not easy to get rid of code.
0: Actually, that that is a, an interesting point where there, there are an awful lot of people who are not prepared to throw away their first design. And, and that's an interesting thing that you mentioned because I, I know when doing uh, high-level language coding and so on, one of the things that they say is that you, you need to be always prepared to just throw away something and because invariably what you build will be far better than the thing you started with. But but if you feel sort of like in love with everything you build and you just want to keep changing it, you'll often end up with a, a, a pretty poor design.
1: I mean... We've just started using a, a, a source control tool pretty heavily for all of our our code, and mm-hmm. we've had we would have the databases and backups. But and one of the things I find is it's re, I, I've never really gone back to previous editions of the code to see what had happened, and, I, and I've, I still find it kind of interesting because there have been times when I would I would write a bunch of code and we I would lose it. Somehow the database would get deleted. Mm -hmm. I would lose the backup, or I would trust an automated tools doing the backups, and they weren't. And I invariably you rebuild it and you find how much better it is the second time.
0: Yeah, because you lost
1: the mistakes and you just kept the good part. And the second time you go through, you 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 don't make the same mistakes. You you
0: remember. And I think you you also have a much clearer picture in your head of where you're going then you often do the first time you build it anyway. So you, you will build something cleaner.
1: That was one point I, I didn't make a second ago when we were talking about design. While it's great to do iterative design, you still need to have a, a knowledge of where you're headed. And mm. so if you, going back to the email, if, if you only ever wanted to have one email address ever for one person, and that was the final goal in the world, then the, the initial design would have been great. But we all know that as time passes, we know that people are going to have more than one email address, more than one phone number. So there's a different sort of way to implement that in the future. But as like like you started out saying, databases don't change as much as, as we'd like them to because mm-hmm. all that code attached to it is very hard to, to get rid of. And even when they do an entire wholesale um, UI recreation, They usually use the exact same structures and try to phase it in, not having any kind of change unless the database absolutely positively needs to change.
0: Actually, I, I have a theory as to one of the reasons I think databases don't change so much as well is that I think in most places I go into, the people managing it have no visibility into the code that touches it. And so they're also always caught in a bind where the minute they go to change something, they have no idea who was about to yell at them or what they've just broken. And so they tend to be very conservative about ever changing anything. And uh, I I do think that is just simply a lack of one layer of abstraction. And more and more modern or let's call modern in quotes design techniques that say everything always just hits the tables and there's no concept of like a proc layer a view layer or something there i think the problem with that approach while it's straightforward and they see it as very simple is that it leads to a situation in large organizations of complete stagnation where nobody can change anything because they they can't go off and run every single report and every single excel spreadsheet and every integration services package and every little access database to see what happens
1: oh absolutely there's absolutely no, no question that's the thing. And I, one, of the, one of the reasons why I started the Simple Talk blog about what counts for a DBA is I see the people that come to SQL Saturday and I see the people that are MVPs and the people who tweet, and I see what makes them good. And then I see other people who just don't do the kinds of things that they do a lot of times on the forums you know they're just like just give me the answer I want to have the exact answer fix it the way I want it fixed and not mm-hmm. don't don't teach me some technique that would make it easier yeah,
0: don't don't tell me that the approach I'm taking is actually wrong yeah, yes so. and
1: I and I always try to be kind and tell people you know you could mm-hmm. solve it this way you know this will get you by but next time you know this is this is maybe a little better and you know i I'm not perfect. I'm not the only answer. That's really mm. great about having so many people in this community of ours helping each other. And, and I don't understand, still don't quite understand why we do it. You know, we all, for mm. different organizations and different companies, and we're all in competition with each other. And yet we're all out here helping each other write better SQL and write, write um, design databases and write code. Yeah. It's a very strange <laughs> phenomenon.
0: But I love it. Ah, but but good, but good. Listen, one I do want to ask you about um, is how you like to handle enumerations or enumerated data because typically in a design model, I mean, it's easy to see them as a, an entity that, and so on, but the problem is that if you end up having an entity there to hold like every single little list of things that could be an enumeration in a high-level language, uh, that the performance of that in terms of join performance and so on gets atrocious. And we don't have any way of doing just like built-in enumerations in SQL Server. And I, I just sort of wonder how you decide where something becomes a table or not. Or is there any other way you typically like to try and implement those?
1: So I, I definitely don't like the one-table approach where there's one table for all your domains. Yeah, I, I really hate that. You know, I, I say have as many small tables as you possibly
0: yeah, can. Yeah, the the table to rule them all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you often see that. You see like a code table or something like that. And and then I always go, yeah, why, why can't you just have a separate table? And they always go, oh, you know, like, like it's a revelation. And you go, well, you know, it, 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 there isn't a rule that says you can only have 15 tables, you know, <laughs> or 20 tables. You know, so.
1: No, no, that number is way higher than that. Yeah. <laughs> so... I always suggest you have at least some way to disambiguate what a value is. And you get the database mm-hmm. and there's a one in there. Yeah, what status equal 1? Well, maybe we need to go back to the code. That's not good,
0: right? And this is the thing, right? So, do you want to have that knowledge only available in the app or do you want to have that somehow visible But do you embed it in a view or do you embed it in the, you know, table entries or like, how do you decide that?
1: I usually create tables for almost everything. I find anytime Mm -hmm. I'm not, anytime I try to put in a check constraint, it it fails. Creating a view, I mean, you're going to end up making a, uh, you're going to end up needing an index to make that work well enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would also say that if you want to have enumerations in your, in your code, that's, that's fine, too. Just make sure you have that also in a table and, and so it's validated somehow. I know people th- that... Yeah. It's,
0: that One that of it's, the approaches I saw the other day that I sort of wonder what you think about is that they simply created a CLR data type uh, and then it had properties for all the different values. And then they simply used a data type to hold that.
1: Am I supposed to to you, you that or...?
0: <laughs>
1: that sounds really terrible yeah I mean hopefully I'm not you know <laughs> it's nobody we know right
0: no. nobody's going to pick me up and
1: pass this year You're, you didn't like my <laughs> no I, people I don't know why people are f- afraid of foreign keys I, I've mm-hmm. done a lot of testing on foreign keys to try to you know is it, is it slower to have a foreign key yes is it slower enough that you would ever possibly notice this on any system that isn't like facebook no right you can have 20 30 40 foreign keys on a table if the tables all fit on one page of which is you know eight thousand characters that's pretty big domain then it's there's going to be one read per
0: per yeah, it's, it's not going to be relevant. The, it, it is interesting, the, the thing you raise because I come across, this is something I come across all the time with the, the lack of foreign keys. And if I look at the reasons why people list, the first up is the developers are lazy and they haven't thought about the order in which they'd have to update data. And they've run into problems with that. And the easiest way was to just get rid of all the foreign keys. The yeah. second thing I hear all the time is they say the application does that. And yet every time I go and check on a sizable site, they're wrong. And, you know, then I find data that doesn't match. And they say, oh, oh yeah, that's right. There was this, oh, that's right. There was that bug. Oh, yeah. Hmm, okay. And yeah. then they always have a story. Yes. But it's it's usually wrong <laughs> somewhere along the way. And the third one I hear all the time is in relation to performance. And the thing I'm typically saying to them is, I say, have, have you actually tried it? And and the thing is, a lot of them have a, a rule where they just go, we just don't do that because we're concerned about performance. But what I try and get them to do is to say, look, why don't you have them up to the point that you can't have them? <laughs> you yes. Know? And, and the thing is, and in that case, it's a, my guess is it's only going to probably be one or two tables at best. And even then, I'd rather have them there and disabled r- rather than never have them in the first place.
1: Well, I mean, unless you have very large keys...
0: As well as community resources such as this podcast, Sequel Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com.
1: You can fit Mm. a lot of data, a lot of rows into a two or three level um, uh, B-tree index, right? Mm. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of rows. So if you have an index on a foreign key, unless you're updating millions and millions of rows and usually we're talking about OLTP databases they're, you're yeah. not updating millions of rows at a time. You're updating one or two at a time. The, 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 the things that they're doing, most people are doing wrong, generally far away the things that they're doing right. That would harm performance, like updating a, a table by something other than an indexed column. And certainly a, a unique index column is perfect, but by some non-indexed indexed column and locking the entire table for the update. You know, that's the kind of thing that people do and they and they go, "Oh, SQL server's slow. Our our, our disks are too slow. We're going to need faster disks." And then yeah. and somebody who knows what they're doing goes in and goes, "Wow, if you just put an index here, here, and here." Done. But yeah. so
0: we heard actually, that, slowed that's it actually that's another down. <laughs> Yeah, that that is another really good point is that whenever whenever I see arguments around foreign keys being problems, invariably it's an indexing issue rather than something else. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) Mind you, I I have a a hunch myself that I think SQL Server brings that on itself. I've had a connect item up for many years saying, I think by default, SQL Server should just provide an index on foreign keys that are declared uh, unless you use the I know what I'm doing option (laughs) (laughs) or something, because I think the the default action of not having those things indexed tends to be way more tragic than the alternative downside.
1: Yeah, because they're either good for doing a search or they're going good for doing a delete. So like if you have a low cardinality parent that has maybe five rows and there's a billion rows in the table, it's, it's not helping you in, in queries, but when you try to delete one of those rows, it can either be two or three reads or two or three billion reads, right? So.
0: Yeah. Actually, that's, that's another classic I hear all the time. It's a very common myth where people say, look, yeah, the more indexes you have, you know, the, the slower your updates and deletes and things will be. And I think, like, Really? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Yeah. Just just try and delete a customer when you've got yeah a gigantic water table attached to it, and you don't have an appropriate index here. Yeah, so.
1: And if people um, would would learn, I mean, and obviously there's so much to learn to get really really great at this. But if people would learn how indexes work, and then learn things about the DMVs, which will tell you how many times indexes have been used, and you know how much I/O they're being used. I've I've seen people correct queries that do that. If I keep this query it'll cost me this much if I delete this query this index it'll cost me this much based on so much how it's been used you know there's so much richness deep down in there and I know I had a conversation with a developer once and I understand their thinking SQL Server just works you know it is just an amazing data chunking kind of place but And they're not worried because they've got enough hardware, it just works, I don't need to worry about it. But then their company grows and they do need to worry about it, and they think they know what they're doing and they get kind of lost.
0: It's interesting. Actually, that applies to all different parts of the product, too. I find, like, for example, in analysis services, I'm surprised the number of times we get sort of called in for performance-type issues, and you find there are no aggregations, Uh, That have been created at all, like the fact that the thing was able to answer queries at all in the in the time it does is is a miracle, really. And and uh, the idea that uh, yeah you could you could apply aggregations and it might actually run quickly all the time. The uh, uh, that that seems to be kind of foreign to some of the people but yeah it's it's not when we go in it's not usually that they haven't done the aggregations correctly often it's they haven't done them at all and uh, and i find exactly the same in transactional systems i've lost count of the number of times i've gone in and they said yeah we've just got the app going and we were going to get to the indexing sometime You go right, okay, <laughs> you know, and you sort of like look at the problem and go, hmm, interesting. But what's intriguing is how long people will put up with that sort of situation. Now, I was at a place that does design of, um, let we say, shall we say, fiberglass products, uh, and they had uh, a website where people could come in and sort of design the uh, the objects on the fly, and they were getting literally up to sort of minute and a half type page turnaround times in their app and you go like when somebody's trying to use your website i mean if they're sitting there for a minute and a half all the time like things are not good you know every time they they do something and it's and of course the only reason they get get somebody involved is that eventually they start being over two minutes and the the site starts timing out (laughs) But but in the end, that simply the lack of an index, it, you know would have made those things be a quarter of a second. You know, like, but the thing is, they'll never look at that, and they'll just keep putting up with it getting longer and longer and longer. I, it, it's just an amazing scenario.
1: Yeah, and I'm a big advocate that you don't index too much during the development process, because you you will start guessing what people are going to do, what the optimizer is going to do. But I also I'm not, <laughs> not no, don't wait until it's in production and it's running slowly to do your first performance tuning you know there's performance testing on real size data with real size numbers of people that attaching att- 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 attaching to the database I, I there's you know there's there's thousands of examples of websites that go up and they get a little bit bigger amount of 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 traffic and all of a sudden they fail and everybody's like "What? it's terrible oh no and they associate that with the with the product they're working with. They're t- are trying to buy mm. it. just looks bad. So, and I and I know it's really hard to do performance tuning. You know, that's it's no no question. One of the things I I, I will admit quickly is that database design and database implementation and, and T SQL coding they're probably one of the easiest on, on the whole disciplines in, in my mind because. We have T-SQL. It's been around for 20, 30 years. It works the same way. They've added incremental things to it over time, but it's not like it's a completely different language every time. The paradigm is largely mm-hmm. the same. The the the, the, imp, the increased technology comes in the engine. The engine is like so much different than we when we first started. You know, back then it we I, I know our SQL Server had a 16 megabyte. Um, uh, uh, um, yeah, on on
0: OS two. Yes, indeed. And now, in fact, I, I remember trying to spin up a virtual machine and not being able to uh, of SQL Server one point one, and the the reason we couldn't get it to boot is we're giving it too much memory. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, yeah, anything uh, more like I mean, yeah, a, a real machine with more than like 32 mega memory just w- wasn't an issue, <laughs> you know, at the time. So, I um, accidentally, meg- I gave it 128 mega memory, and of course, yeah, it just would not boot at all because the operating system didn't even understand that. Uh, yeah.
1: That that was hard disk size. That was. I think we had a 50 <laughs> megabyte database. That was we ran our entire organization of on that, and it was just it was amazing to think back. that little machine sitting in that closet replacing a mainframe where the tapes were as big as the machine
0: the the approach for doing a lot of that was very different though because i mean if i look i uh, showing age here but i did work a lot on like large hp minis and things like that and you know we'd often have 50 or 60 users on a machine with two meg of memory right and you think like how how could that possibly happen? Um, but but the thing is that the way the code was done was very different. So for example, when you compiled code, it didn't just become an exe and go into memory. What they then had is they had a segmenter that then took the exe and broke it into appropriate pieces, and and it didn't just break it into sizable chunks. It broke it along, you know, let's keep loops within the same piece of code. And, you know, it was an intelligent segmenter. And then those segments were what would end up in memory and so on. So, you know, like there were very, very different techniques that people were using at the time for, for doing that sort of work. It wasn't just let's build executables where every XE is, you know, umpteen megabytes in size and then just throw a whole heap of them in memory. I mean, that, that just wasn't the thinking.
1: That kind of talk is why I went into, why I had just got my degree in computer science when I had gotten this job as a land administrator and I started doing, I was like, man, programming is hard. Like, you yeah. all this stuff. I, I, I didn't do very well in math. I mean, I have a minor in math, but I got C's in every single math class. And SQL is just a very wonderful compute programming language. I don't know that the, the techniques I used to build, I I, I think I wrote three or 400 triggers and three or 400 sort of procedures on that system mm. created or modified them. And it is by hand right now there were, we didn't have tools yet to, the, to develop them. And it was just, it's pretty much the same techniques now, except I have better tools.
0: Yeah. That, that's, that's kind of how I feel. I, I, I find one of the things I think with the industry, I'm endlessly telling people that I think you need to be prepared that 80 or 90% of what you know today is useless in four years time. But it's that other ten or twenty percent that I think keeps you out of trouble, so uh, that, that, that's kind of a good thing. Yep. But listen, you you mentioned two thousand uh, like the the fact that a lot of this stuff hasn't sort of changed too much along the way. Um, another question we had yesterday from our buddy Buck Woody was saying, so what do you think is notable in two thousand and twelve? And I suppose it, it the allied question is then why do you need to keep producing another version of the book?
1: So. Well, that's a tough question, isn't
0: it? <laughs> I really don't
1: need. To. Um, so, as a relational engine lover of sorts, yeah, it, it is. I can't. I don't know how to put this nicely. It, it's always a little disappointing that the that the the engine has been just incrementally changing over the years. Every every release, we don't get like the new. You know, it's not like Silverlight. This is <laughs> we can now do movies yep. with this. No, we we can still store data. I remember one version we got back in the good old days. We got constraints instead of having to use triggers. That was amazing. Yep. And then in seven zero, they changed the engine, and pretty much you know select star from table works in every single version the same way. Mm-hmm. In the two thousand edition, we get sequences, which are cool, and I did a. What I'll call my least popular presentation ever has been on on sequences. I I could talk two hours on the you know the techniques and examples and showing how one is faster than the other and but you know it's it's a nifty new feature to let you have a auto-generated value that's not tied to a table. File table is mm-hmm. pretty cool. I, I've I've written a little bit about that.
0: Ah, oh, so when you said two thousand, yeah, you're in two thousand twelve, where we got. Oh yeah, I moved yes. to so, yeah, and, then, and so yeah, I think they're they're nice, and the one of the things I've seen that used for as well is the idea that you could have a a, a single sequence used across multiple tables. Do you tend to come across that?
1: Much? I've not actually thought of a good reason why you would want to do that other than a version, mm-hmm. like if you want to have a yep. database wide version that you, you, you update, but I really haven't seen a good, a good call for that. I have a, I have an example of it because it's, you know, it's a mm. compelling example. My favorite example is we have an account number generator that we've built using a use with a, a critical section using application logs. And I've, i built an example replacing that with just a loop inside of a store procedure Getting the next sequence until it reaches, till, till it reaches the next acceptable sequence number. We have rules where certain number um, patterns we don't want them to show up in our our account numbers for people. And these are three characters long, so sometimes you'll have to skip a thousand or ten thousand um, rows. And you know you would think it would be best to go stop, add the numbers to it, and then move along. Well, in my testing, I was able to just just keep it in a tight loop. If that, value, if the if the next value created, along with a check digit, doesn't match your your sequence your uh, your allowed patterns, get the next one. Get the next one. And within an hour mm-hmm. on my on my um, laptop, I was able to create like 10 million of these things, which is a really large number. If you're creating 10 million mm-hmm. accounts in an hour, in your company, you're doing really well, because right? yeah. that's that's like the population of New York every hour. So
0: mm-hmm. there's
1: that kind of it's, – it's a really cool thing because it, 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 it's, not, it's not down to – it's not covered by transactions, right? So if you roll back, it, 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 it's not blocked by other people also using the sequence. So you can both be within the same, a different transaction and both be hitting this sequence table really, really fast. So that's a neat feature. That's probably one of the biggest database design features they've added. You know, mm-hmm. All the coding stuff is really nice. The throw is yeah. excellent. That's getting a little bit better towards excellent air handling.
0: Yeah, I must admit it is an area where I keep yearning for something much, much more though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I. I, I think I keep looking at the sort of constructs that I have in higher-level languages and sort of wishing I could get that at a lower level. Um, and I, I think maybe part of what I'm after is sort of testability and things like that. Uh, and so this is something that does frustrate me in the product. Uh, I hate scenarios where I can write code, but I can't test it.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> you know, so, so, for example, I mean, I can write code to trap an error, but I can't throw the error. And then you go, right, okay, so how exactly does somebody test that code?
1: Well, it's a little better now with the rethrow that you get with
0: 2000. Yeah, but I can't throw a system error, for example. I can trap a system error, but I can't throw one. I, I can rethrow one. Yes. But I'm not going to create a disk checksum error to find out what happens. You know what I
1: mean? Yes. <laughs> so...
0: Oh, and, so... yeah, and
1: there's still certain errors that can't be trapped because they're, they're just too bad.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I think the thing is, I, my, my testability side of me says that any time I write code, I should have a way of testing that the code works. And in a higher level language, I mean, I can just throw any error I like to see what happens.
1: Well, and that's kind of the difference between a declarative language and a and a, a procedural language. When, in the procedural language, you have control. You are writing every bit of the code and, and interacting with the operating system and stuff. In the declarative language you're just like asking it questions and saying here get get it done and there's just certain things mm-hmm. it can't let you do
0: and but so, see I look and go why why can't I just go throw 823 you know what I mean or throw some some number like why exactly can't I do that I mean, Yeah, there's and, definitely uh,
1: some things it should let you do <laughs> no
0: yeah, and, and so I, I look at that, and whenever I talk to them, again, it's a very conservative thing, but they say, well, you know, there'd be these errors turning up coming to product support, and we'd have no idea where they came from. Well, yes, maybe, but the thing is, uh, if I look at uh, Ray's error, for example, I mean, yeah, you have options, like, I mean, you could set the status to a a particular value that even though it might not a hundred percent tell you that that's where it came from, that would give you a very, very big clue that that's likely where it came from, you know, or, or something like that, you know, where they can do a raise error of any area you like. But, you know, if you do that with a system error, this status is the one that's going to be applied in there, not the one you pick, you know, or something like that. Uh, and anyway, I, I, that's I think an there's ways around that.
1: That's mm-hmm. an interesting reason why they wouldn't let you do that. I like that. That's,
0: yeah, no, actually, that was one of the ones I got, I got back. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's sort of interesting, yeah, the conservative approach with some of those things. And uh, but, but as I said, yeah, I, I, there are many of those sorts of things I look at where even with procs, I like the idea of having some sort of code contract and being able to discover that with the metadata. Uh, it's another good example that I think is problematic. You shouldn't have to read the code of a proc to know how to use it. You know what I mean? Like uh, I, I think all of that sort of thing should be discoverable in the metadata.
1: Yeah. We used to write our store procedures with a, a metadata parameter that would then spit out a bunch of metadata to, that the user could use, but it was mm. super tedious. You know, it was stuff that yeah I, I had to figure out and, and write down. And I think they're getting better with that. In this version, they did something with not set format, but it, it'll give you the f- output.
0: Yeah, first output. Got, SSP describe first result yes. set is probably the one you're meaning and even that I find kind of strange the way they've implemented it uh because some of them they've done as system stored procs some of them they've done as views yeah <laughs> but uh, there, there's no like I I can't see why you wouldn't just have one to one with both of them you know so because to me um I I'd much rather them be in views because I'm thinking of somebody writing tools or things like that I want something I can query uh, as opposed to you know, having to execute um, uh, a system stored proc and catch the output.
1: Oh yeah, I wasn't. Suge- I, I'm not suggesting it's are perfect. I just I'm pointing out mm. to to anybody else listening, <laughs> they're getting a little better. It's yeah. not. Just, I'm sure other people will listen, right? That's that's kind of the idea.
0: Yeah, uh. but I, I think that's the thing, anyway. So as I said, I look at those sort of constructs in high-level languages and. Just wish a lot of those things were there. So um, another example is things like I would like to know what exceptions the proc knows it might throw without me having to read the code of the proc. Yes. You know, So, I mean, if you're going to call this proc, you should be prepared to handle the no such customer exception and the no such order exception and the you know whatever. I shouldn't have to go and read the whole code of the proc to know that. I, I think that should come back in the metadata.
1: Maybe this is why it's better not to actually be a programmer of, for that procedural language. <laughs> I, mean, I get excited when they add things like, you know, format. And... Yeah. <laughs> I can write a store procedure. I'm happy. That's. Um...
0: No, that's good. That's good. Listen, what I do want to do um, in the limited time we have available then still is in the what counts for a DBA topics that you've had. I'd uh, like to run through your thoughts on a few of those, and I noticed that the top one you had on the list was passion. Yes. Well. And so why?
1: So when I when I came up with this idea, I was thinking, what 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 really makes people great? And the first one was passion. I like people. When you when you when you do an interview with somebody, you ask them, why why do you want this job? You want to hear something better than I need I need money. I have kids and they're hungry, can I don't want to feed them. And something a little bit less than I—I'm super. You can—you'll be great if you have me on your team. And yeah, you know, I want—I want somebody who just says, "I love this stuff. I love databases. I love coding." I go to—I go to these things on the weekends for free. You know, maybe—maybe maybe they don't speak. Maybe they just go to learn. Maybe they write. Maybe they read books on the side. I want to know somebody really really loves what they're doing i I have this theory on on jobs and i think that there's some garbage men out there some sanitation engineers who are the happiest human beings on the earth and everybody else around them are thinking man what is this guy doing that for and they're thinking you know i'm cleaning this part of the world this is my job and Mm -hmm. i i I envied those kind of people back when i was originally having had a job because you know, you really—I was a land administrator, and I was like, this is really horrifying. I was climbing underneath people's desks, telling them to reboot their machine, jiggling cables. I was like, man, I should find another kind of job. And I got this opportunity to be in databases. And over the years, I've just grown to love it. And I see this community of people who are out here, you know, working and helping each other. And it's just a wonderful thing. And I want to—I want to see people just really intense about the work they do it was kind of interesting my dad was a, a, an incredible mechanic but he never really loved being a mechanic he didn't he didn't work cars mm. at home he didn't you know he came home is like you know tell me about something in the car and they're like no
0: <laughs> actually do you do you think that's one of the big tests is the fact that you would continue to do some of that stuff even if you don't have to um, and, and so I, the reason I ask that is uh, I have a friend, Mitch Denny, uh, some people will know, but uh, Mitch uh, works more in the development side. But when he's talking to people, he tends to classify them into daytime programmers and nighttime programmers, you know, or developers. And uh, and he'll he has sort of an interest in finding people who that even though they'll do that sort of stuff during the day, it's not just a job for them that there'll be something that they'll want to go home and dabble and do things and whatever. And uh, I suppose the, there's a limit to how far you want to do that though, because you could uh, end up like a completely antisocial sort of person, but there, there's some balance there where there is evidence of a passion around it.
1: I, sometimes I do wonder if, if, you know, being antisocial wouldn't be perfect, just nothing else. Mm-hmm. All I do is work. And, but yeah. you know, that's not really the case. I, 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 I gained a lot of weight when I started writing uh, too because I didn't exercise I when I first wrote when I wrote my first book it took about a year and it took about a year of coming home six hours a night for yeah really 12 months through holidays and everything sitting at my my mother-in-law's house writing and there there is a level there's a place where you really shouldn't go and one of the things I, I made sure of of course was I always went to my daughter's kind of um, so- yeah,
0: events, and, uh, yes, basketball, yes, volleyball. Yes,
1: yeah. You know, I actually – one of the reasons why I first bought my first smartphone was so I could continue working at halftime. Mm-hmm. You know, I sit there and I was typing up ideas. Yeah. But, yeah, there's there's always balance. You need to – you obviously need to balance it to where you're happy. But
0: mm. – you, you also mentioned the next one, though. You said skill. And so – one of the things I'm interested in your thoughts on is that when you're hiring somebody, I often see people who won't hire someone that's very skilled because they think they'll be bored in the job. Um, do you have a, a take on that either way? That- would you prefer to have someone who wants to learn or someone who already knows how to do it? Well,
1: I, I would be more scared of someone who thinks they know everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you put that? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, as you get older, you realize how stupid you are. Now, I'm getting yeah. older, so now I'm realizing how stupid I am. And you see, when, when I, let's take it back to the book. The first time I wrote my book, I thought I was smart. You know, I, I looked around. I found some things. I know how to design a database. I'll write a book about it. I had eight, eight technical uh, reviewers back then. That was eight people that called me some of the names that not – in, in so many words, but in thousands of comments. wow, this is really dumb. You wouldn't do this. I didn't like consultants <laughs> because I'd never really mm-hmm. worked with consultants except some really bad consultants. And you, you learn and, and the more you more you grow, the more you learn. There's no there's nobody who has all the skills at, at developing, knows every technique and also knows the business that you're working with well enough that they're, that they should ever be bored. Yeah. If they are bored, that means they're probably not very good employees to start with. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not going to even lie and say I'm the perfect employee, but yeah, it's, I, I, I think you just got to keep working at it. This things change Mm. constantly. SQL server. I, like I said, it hasn't changed as much as some other technologies, but it it continues to change, and continues to give you more DBA tasks. You know, and the things I mentioned about two thousand twelve I like. There's also a lot of DBA things that have changed, high availability, BI changes, yep, stuff that if you if you're bored of learning all of this stuff, you know you're probably ready to move on to CEO or something. Hmm. Something
0: I'm no dude. Listen, the last one I'm going to ask you about is that uh, you had humility on the list. And uh, I thought that was a nice addition to the list. And, uh, in fact, the example you used is you said there's a group of players in American football that just hope their names don't get called out during a game.
1: Yes. This was the the first one I got really beaten up on from some developers because I'm, (laughs) I'm a little unkind. You know, developers are a little headstrong. Managers are headstrong. Packaged applications are largely messed up. Right. But you have to just, you have to work with people in, in a way that you treat them as equals, even if you don't feel that way. Right. Mm. Ironically, the next no. entry is ego and that I'm, I'm writing right now. And it's kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the counter to this that while and, and my example, there is another, another sports analogy of, of a basketball player. You know, you, Everybody on the team can, can hit a free throw. Everybody on the team can hit, the, hit a shot from anywhere. But you call on the person who knows they can do it at the time that, that it's necessary. At the last second of the game, you want the guy who's really, really good and really, really believes himself. Mm. So the balance between being hum- humble and, and working with people and honoring their opinions and also having this kind of knowledge that you know what you're doing is a tremendously hard balance for people.
0: Do you think? Do you think part of that in that case is just simply also the ability to handle pressure?
1: Yes, absolutely. Because mm. you have certain people that are good under pressure, certain people that are good as you know d- designers, but really probably have never coded a major system themselves, never written a query. I understand there's architects who never actually write code. <laughs> so-
0: I, I think that there's also a group of people who have wonderful ideas, but yet if you put them in a meeting situation, they'll never be able to get those ideas across.
1: Yes, and there's also people in the meeting that have terrible ideas that are excellent at mm. getting their ideas across. That's yeah. that, And that's kind of the balance, right? The perfect person is humble and you, you want to work with them, you like their ideas, they share when they need to, and then they have an ego that's there and ready to say you know i've been working at this i worked on this kind of problem before i know what i'm doing you know I, i'm not going to tell you yes i know exactly how to fix this because i haven't looked at the problem yet but i'm ready to fork at the problem because i'm mm. working at it i'm studying i'm ready put me in coach right
0: <clears throat> excellent well listen The final thing, uh, we did have a question from Dave Dustin where he asked you about would you architect differently for the cloud, but uh, I I noticed the response was uh, that that was an area you hadn't been tackling yet. Um, Do you suspect that's an area you're going to be?
1: I did actually create a SQL Azure account about six months ago, and I tried it a couple of times. It looked a lot like SQL, and then Mm -hmm. I had to finish writing the book.
0: Yeah, other things, yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think it's something I've spent more and more time on in uh, recent times, and it gets more and more interesting as, as time goes on. So, yeah, I think it's an area we'll no doubt spend further time on. I, but I, where, where, will, where will people come across you in the upcoming months at all, though? Uh I presume the past summer? I'll
1: definitely uh, be at PASS, doing a pre-con on database design. Yeah. So I yep. have, I'd love to have a big crowd to do that. Because mm-hmm. I've I've tried doing database design sessions in an hour, and they always come out as just a big long preaching session with no kind of application. Yeah. And even though I'm doing a presentation this weekend at the Cleveland um, SQL Saturday event,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I'm it's a de- design session, and I'm I'm having to trim it down completely quite a bit because I have a lot of code in the session that I want to present. I'll be doing a 24 hours of past session on the characteristics of a great database. Kind of a fun session, yep. just talking about what what makes something good and kind of what makes things bad. And then if they're at Disney World around in December, they can buy me lunch if they want to.
0: <laughs> there you go. On- oh. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time today, Lewis. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. Thank you very much.